CIUT 89.5 Toronto. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Hi, I'm Daniel Garber from CIUT Friday Morning. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Hi, I'm Mark Tara from Rainbow Country and together we are Team CIUT bringing you coverage of TIFF 2020. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, I'm very proud to be here tonight and I'm so grateful that you joined us. I'll stop till you get enough. Hello Toronto! Toronto, the best of them all. If you ever think about the best place to watch things, it's different. I want to thank Toronto because you have always honored, celebrated, exalted female directors. The warmth and the love that you gave me is something I will never forget in my life. It's so exciting to be here at Toronto in this gorgeous theater. This is just like Christmas Day. Thanks to you for coming. This is truly a very special evening for me. This is why we do what we do, you know. I love this festival and it's an honor to be back. Behind me is what we call society, what we see in our everyday and what we have on screen. Let's keep on doing movies about us. We're making pictures about what's happening today in society. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Hi, everybody, and welcome to CIUT at TIFF 2020. This week, we're bringing you the news, views, reviews, and interviews about what happened at the 45th annual Toronto International Film Festival. But first up, let me introduce the team that's bringing you TIFF 2020. She's the producer and host of The More the Merrier, heard right here Wednesday morning at 1 a.m. She's Donna G, and today Donna G will be talking to director Alex Anna about her personal short documentary called Scars. He's the producer and host of the syndicated radio show and number one LGBT podcast, Rainbow Country, which can be heard Tuesdays at 11 p.m. right here on CIUT. And in this episode, Mark Tara will be talking with the filmmakers of the new Canadian short, The Archivists. And me, Daniel Garber, the movies on CIUT, Friday morning at 9 a.m. And today we'll be talking with directors Jennifer Abbott and Joel Backen about the new corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel. And together we are Team CIUT bringing you coverage of TIFF. 
This year's Toronto International Film Festival finished on Sunday, September 20th, but TIFF continues to show movies online and in person at the TIFF Bell Lightbox all year round. Go to TIFF.net for details. My name is Charles Officer, and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM. Up first, Mark is talking with the filmmakers of the new Canadian short, The Archivists. Noah Reed, hi, how are you? Hey, I'm well, how are you doing? I am well. Uh, Igor, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm Thanks well. for inviting us. You're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. Igor, I'm not going to try to attempt to say your last name, but please do say it the correct way. It's Drlacha, but like if I was to translate it, it would actually be Tillerson. So I would be Igor Tillerson. Tillerson, okay. The irony. I, I, I'm not proud of that moment, but when I, when, I, when I discovered that, but yeah, apparently that's what my name would be in English. So say one more time in... Drlacha. What? Say it again? Drlacha. Ah, you roll your tongue so well. <laughs> yeah. First try. of all, first of all, I have to say to the two of you, thank you for taking time out to be here, to have your voices, your stories, uh, be heard by the by the LGBT community and beyond. So, thank you so much for that, especially when it comes to Igor, your your new short film, the the Archivist. Uh, well done, I've seen it. Uh, thank you. I, I have to say, Igor, you are the director. I believe you also wrote it. Mm -hmm. uh, the Archivist, what is this short film? What is this film about? Um, it was an attempt to tell a story that's, that's sort of a dystopian tale, but that sort of gives uh, uh, sort of hope uh, within that environment that sort of allows... Um, the survivors to you know find new meaning find new ways of dreaming find new ways of connecting to this old world and um and it's also at the same time a, a way of me sort of processing what was going on in the world uh you know with like the rise of the far right and brexit and you know uh, the 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 man shall be unnamed um <laughs> so so yeah it was just like a way of sort of struggling with this idea but not making a dystopian tale that's without any hope um how creativity in the end sort of saves us all hmm. and noah reed you co-star in the short alongside uh bahai watson i believe yes yeah. you say yeah. her name and maxwell mccabe uh locos uh what what drew you to this project noah well, I think when I first read um, Igor's script, I, it, it was such um, it, it was an incredibly visual script. A lot of uh, um, um, beautiful. It, he he. The way that he writes really paints a, a picture that you can you can sort of envision in your in your mind. Um, and I I felt like the the message of um, that you know cultural artifacts and and things that the things that we leave behind as artists are going to speak to, you know, past generation or future generations as we become past generations. Um, and that, you know, hopefully no matter what the outcome of, of the, the political world or the landscape or however thing, I mean, obviously, you know, things like pandemics and, and wars can really 
alter uh, the experience of, of being alive. Um, but there, there are these little landmarks that we, that we can leave behind through creativity and through art um, that, uh, that, you know, are going to be uh, hopefully lasting in some way. I think that's sort of the, the thing that I keyed into was like, as a, as a creative person, as a musician as well, I'm like, okay, I'm interested in, in what I can, what I can say about the human experience, how I can leave it behind uh, as a, as a marker in some way for, for future generations. And um, I think I really connected to that notion. Also, I, I'm, I'm a big um I'm a big records guy. I love uh, I love vinyl. So all the all the little nods to vinyl were kind of fun. And I I also love projects that can creatively involve you know my musical world and uh, and my acting world. And um, I think it's rare that a short film you know is able to approach uh, almost anything with as much scope as uh, as. Igor was able to uh, able to do with his script and, and with the direction of this short, it, it just felt like a, a real world was being created. And um, and so I, I, I don't know, I was immediately drawn to the project. Igor, the the archivist was shot on 16 millimeter. Why did you choose to shoot on film on 16 compared to digitally? Talk to me about that decision, first and foremost. I mean, it was uh, it was something that I think kind of lend itself to what we wanted to explore, which is sort of this analog world that's left behind. These artifacts are left behind, and film, in this strange way, is on its last legs. It's sort of a it's become a hobbyist uh, and a specialization to sort of use it to to kind of appropriate images on it because it's they don't really have many labs left that uh, that process it. So it was, I think, just it helped uh, with the texture of the world. It helped with the way we wanted to portray the uh, uh, the, the the landscapes, the way we wanted to portray the the, the all graininess. the other visual elements. Yeah, the graininess. Um, and it's it's something that I felt I always wanted to work with film again, and I never had the ability or the budget. So this is like one opportunity to you know try this because um, I. Th- think we won't have the ability to do this for a very long time. It'll just be probably too expensive for most uh, filmmakers. So Igor, the, the archivist, is this part of a bigger project or is this something that stands on its own? The initial idea was something that was a bigger project um, and it just was a bit too big. So I tried to figure out a way that I can pull it off um, without, you know, thinking about this much bigger world uh, and leave, leave something that could, that could work as a potential for something bigger down the line. Um, but this particular sort of piece within it, like operated on, operates on its own. Um, but the initial idea that I started playing with was, was a longer piece. And Noah, you are an award-winning uh, actor of stage and screen. You are a musician. You have what two recordings out yeah. two two albums out yeah. your current yeah. one is gemini that's your current uh record you sing in the film in the short film the archivist was this was this live off the floor were you lip syncing that sort of thing talk to me about yeah, that yeah well we had a, we had a few meetings sort of prior to um 
prior to our shoot, as Igor alluded to, it's the with shooting with 16, you, you want to make sure you know what you're doing before you, before you roll. Um, and so we, you know, we met, uh, Bahia and, and Max and I, and, uh, and Igor and, and the producers and, uh, and the musical supervisors all sort of met to, to get the lay of the land musically. And I think we had a couple of rehearsals where we just sort of, we were able to figure out what the sort of arrangements would be, how we would approach the, the song, making little tweaks to it and, and understanding how we all sort of fit into it. Um, obviously, you know, some of the, some of the, the, the music tracks, the, the backing tracks sort of were going to be fiddled with after the fact. So we just had a sort of a guide track um, and we had little uh, earbuds going. Uh, I had, I think one earbud in and was basically just singing to that. And I think we were close to the end of our last day of shooting uh, when we, when we tackled the song. And, um, and I think we got a, maybe Igor, I can't remember, maybe one or two takes of it, but but the vocal was was live off the floor, and then and then the the rest of the um, the rest of the track was sort of filled in uh, in post production. But uh, but it was it's I I don't know as a as a stage performer as a musical performer I love the the pressure of of having to having to get it in a short period of time and um, uh, there's something about that that just feels right. And I I remember very well in that in that room that was sort of like very dusty, very hot. It was like, a, <laughs> we, we, we were like, okay, let's see, let's see what we can get here. But it, it felt right that, you know, that's what these characters would be. They, they would be in environments that were, um, you know, a little, a, a little bit compromising mo- vocally, maybe even. And so, uh, you know, we, it would, we had some fun with, with just trying to, um, you know, see how it sort of fell off the truck on the day and uh, had our, had our preparations in order. And, I personally, I mean, I, I had never listened to that song before, um, before it popped up the small town boy song. And, and I thought it was really fun to, you know, figure out the, the thread of that as the characters are doing in the, in the film, trying to figure out how it relates to, you know, this, this diary that they've discovered and, and working those narrative, picking up what they can, what they can get off the record, which is obviously a little distorted and then, you know, figuring out a way through. So I felt like we were doing that a lot in the, in the rehearsal processes and even on the day of shooting, just sort of figuring out how it would come together and, and, you know, what our sort of, what our take on it would be. So Igor, Noah was just referencing it. The song that's really featured in, in the short is uh, Small Town Boy by Bronsky Beat. Love the song. Uh, powerful message in the song. Why did you choose this particular song? Um, it always resonated, like for like years leading up to actually uh, wanting to uh, film the short. Like I think when I was thinking about the, the when I was started the writing process, it, it was just like the, the, the song that sort of grab me both because of its importance uh, it's a it's like it's a sort of a, a protest song it's a it's a, a survival song it's a song about endurance and it and that's sort of what I kind of wanted to capture with uh, that same spirit um, even though part of the lyrics have been degraded and lost like the song or rather the the soul of the song survives and uh, the ess- its essence. So that's sort of what I kind of wanted to play around with, like the the essence of these old artifacts, these old uh, uh, cultural 
construct are still is still going to survive on some level they may be recontextualized but like the the feeling that you get from them is still going to survive and that's why i wanted to keep that's why i wanted to use bronski beat it's a small time boy and you have a victrola they played on a victrola mm-hmm. the the record mm-hmm. how where did you find a victrola that that was like a prop house <laughs> okay okay yeah. Gotta love prop houses. <laughs> so, N- Noah, your uh, twenty twenty record Gemini came out in May. Uh, Laura Stanley from Exclaim Magazine praised the album as a comforting embrace. Hmm. Did that come as a surprise to you? <laughs> well, I I don't know. You you never uh, never really in control about what other people say about your work, but I I. I, I like that description. I think it's, especially in the, the context that it was released. I mean, I think in, in May, we were all, uh, we were all locked in a little bit and, and wondering what our, what our world was going to look like um, into the, the summer months. Was summer even going to be a thing? Um, so, and, and I think that the, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to continue with the release of the record was that it, I think a lot of the songs are, are sort of about this, um, uh, connectivity and and connection, love uh, versus isolation and um, you know doubt, uh, which I think we were all in the midst of that that struggle um, at that time. So uh, so yeah, I, I like the uh, comforting embrace uh, title. I'll, I'll run with that. Could you see yourself doing an acoustic version, maybe a slower version of Bronski Beats' "Small Town Boy"? <laughs> yeah do a cover do a cover <laughs> and uh i hadn't considered it but it, yeah i mean i definitely i feel like you know because he's singing very well in the movie well thank you very much live off the like floor on some level that is the cover <laughs> <laughs> so noah you are also an actor on schitt's creek is that correct it is and how did that come about how did you get on board that show when did you come on board that show? Uh, I joined Schitt's Creek in the in the middle of their third season, and uh, and you know the the sixth season just aired earlier this year, and that was the final one. So I uh, I was lucky enough to to be a part of that show for for a few years, and uh, you know just sort of popped up as as any job does. You get a you get an opportunity to to audition and and take your swing and. Um, you know, thankfully for me, there was a, there was a, a connection and um, yeah, what an incredible, what an incredible show to, to get to be a part of. And it's recognized, it's popular pretty much around the globe now. It's wild. We get messages from people in India, um, mm-hmm. from all over Europe, uh, from South America. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's made its way around for sure. I think a couple of Emmy nominations does that. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. I would think so. Igor, you are an assistant professor in film production at the University of British Columbia's Theatre and Film Department. How did you get into film and filmmaking in the first place? How did that come about for you? Um, it's, it's sort of like a long, long story. I don't know if you have time for it, um, but it's like the the sort of the mythology I've created for myself is that when I was about seven, uh, like every New Year's, 
they they tried to uh, show Kubrick's films and 2001 Space Odyssey is like the film they show right after the the the, the clock strikes 12 and I could never finish it like I would always like fall asleep somewhere during either the 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 opening ape scene or like somewhere on the moon and then eventually I think I was like nine or ten just before the war started uh, I finished the film and I'm like what the hell was that and and it kind of festered I think it's sort of like this idea of like what does that story mean why tell it in this way because uh, you're used to as a kid sort of having these very linear uh, three-act structures and um, that kind of I think that kind of lingered and then when I when the war started uh, I spent uh, about a year as a refugee traveling around and we and eventually where, immigrated to and Canada. Where, and where are you talking about? Oh, sorry, uh, former Yugoslavia. So okay. I was born in Sarajevo and uh, when I was nine, the war started. Uh, so we, we, I was in Sarajevo for about a month and a half. Uh, I was left with my mom and my brother, my dad stayed. And then we made our way to uh, other parts of former Yugoslavia, uh, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia. And then eventually we came to Canada. Um, and in Canada, there was always this like gnawing feeling at me that I wanted to tell stories. Uh, but this wasn't something that I was necessarily uh, moved to do because, you know, your parents are always going to be telling you, it's like, you're an immigrant, what are you going to do? Like, you're not going to be making movies. Um, this is not like a realistic uh, profession for you uh, or for people that just arrive. And um, so I kind of decided to just give it a shot uh, and not sort of straddle this line of like, you know, trying to do film while also doing you know, biology or business or something, which is sort of what my parents were really sort of pushing me to do. And uh, so I just sort of applied to film school, uh, send them some of my stuff and sort of, it just sort of be became that, uh, it became like a way of, um, you know, dealing with this, I guess, latent uh, trauma or whatever, whatever it is that I was dealing with in those early films and then sort of moving, um, in, in a slightly different direction with some of this newer stuff. So, Igor, what's the plan for for you now? You have this that's out now, the the archivist. Uh, are you looking to have it show at various festivals, that sort of thing? Is it going to come I mean, out on VOD yeah, at some point? Like, it's going to do its sort of festival run. Mm -hmm. Like, it's starting off in the Canadian festival scene, and then we'll we're waiting to see what's going to happen internationally. Mm -hmm. And then um, because festivals, especially their short sections are all moved online anyway. Um, we don't, we're not sure when it might be available on VOD, but it, it will eventually be available on VOD and mm -hmm. like, you know, all of those platforms. And what's coming up next for you? Uh, I have a film. Um, it's like a love story set in post-war Sarajevo. Um, it's a sort of genre bending uh fairy tale uh about uh two sort of star-crossed lovers uh and the relation and, and sort of it's called the white fortress um and it's it's hopefully going to be it's we're going we're finishing it and aiming to finish it by uh, november this year so hopefully sometime next year we'll have a premiere for that as well so you've done photography and all that sort of stuff yep nice and you just didn't i guess post-production yeah, we're finishing the uh, color and VFX nice. uh, next month. Yep. And Noah, for yourself, this is what's out now for you. 
But what else do you have lined up? Um, you know, uh, a couple of things. I'm sort of working on on putting together a new record and mm-hmm. and uh, trying to figure out um, a timeline on that and a and a safe way to go about it. And mm-hmm. uh, and a couple of little acting projects in the in the works that uh, that I hope will come together. But uh, but yeah, we, I'm just sort of chipping away at my life, you know. Aren't we all <laughs> chipping away, just to, just trying to stay alive? Exactly, man. I'm just, you know, I'm I'm, in, I'm enjoying uh, I'm enjoying some some married life and some some time off. It's been actually a pretty busy year so far, so I'm uh, I'm kind of uh, I'm in I'm in neutral right now, and it feels yeah. kind of good. Yeah, I hear you, Igor and Noah. Thank you both for being on the show. Thank you for taking your time and and chatting with me. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you so much, Mark. It was. A pleasure. This is City Councilor Kristen Wong Tam, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. Up next, Donna G discusses the poetic beauty and the inherent violence of self harm, as conveyed by director Alex Anna in her personal short documentary called Scars. Director Alex Anna has chosen to share a very personal aspect of her own life, and that is her mental health battle with self-harming. Her documentary, Scars, is a blend of live action and animation and explores the issue of beauty and violence, violence in terms of self-harm, to the screen for those of us who know something about self-harm and those of us who don't. Here now is my interview with Alex Anna, whose film Scars played as part of Shortcuts Program 5 at TIFF 2020. Why did you decide to use animation as a way of telling this story? Well, I think I always had this idea that I wanted to work with both uh, live action film and animation, but especially for this movie, I was looking for a way to tell a story about both violence and beauty. You know, I was looking to combine those very antinomic subjects together. And I think poetry and animation brought these to the very um, raw and violent material that is in the audio part. The film and the way it moves is, is so poetic. I, I love the meter. Um, so mm-hmm. I just wondered, and there is a bit of poetry in it. So I just wondered if, uh, if writing poetry is something that you do either professionally or in your your spare time. Uh, in my spare time, yes, I'm definitely a poetry enthusiast, and I do write a lot. Sometimes it's poetic, sometimes not so much. <laughs> okay. but, Can you tell me how you developed the screenplay? You know, it's been sort of um, a very organic process because for months I have been recording myself alone at home, talking about my experience with uh, self-harm and depression. So it was a lot, a lot of raw material. And at first I thought I would be the only one that would uh, edit this. But then a few months later, when I actually met my editor, Valérie Tremblay, we decided that I should give it all to her. And she listened to it and Together, we decided what were the topics we wanted to take out of it and how we wanted to structure the film. Where did um, Clément Natier come in? 
um, both at the beginning and the end of the process. Because when, um, you know, when we had this uh, structure idea and we were doing some tests with the, the director of photography, Marie Ligoulet, we were sort of like taking pictures of the scars of my body and already doing some sketches as to find ideas for animations. And Clément was already there by, by then to help finding ideas. Then we made the editing and that's when we did the, what we call animatics. So that's sort of animated sketches that we can add to the edits. So we have an idea of the rhythm and where we're going and should we go longer or, or shorter for the animations and the shots. And once the edit was done, then we really, really started the animation work with Clemonacci and it lasted for like 10 weeks. So I was watching it and I was admiring uh, the, the beauty and the violence of it, but I was also thinking, wow, this is going to, this must have taken quite some time to do. It has, it has, yes. That was a lot of, of animation work and all the work, of course. Yes, it's a true collaborative effort. Yeah, I'm really, really grateful for everyone that worked on the film and they spent a lot of time on it. And is this the first time that you've uh, documented your self-harm? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, before that, I could barely talk about it. Um, you know, for the years before I started making this movie i started to to talk about it with friends but as i say in the film not a lot of people asked me about it so there was not a lot of dialogue going on it's definitely a first time for me yeah when you mentioned that in the film i thought oh i didn't know it was okay to ask the question yes that's what uh you know i showed the film to a just a couple of friends and that's what they told me that they didn't dare to ask because they thought maybe it's going to be triggering or it's going to be a bad thing for me and well for me it would have been actually showing that they cared and but maybe it's just my opinion and my experience so I think if maybe someone you love uh, have scars like this maybe you should just ask them gently like do you want to talk about it and you know showing that you care but if they don't want to talk about it it's fine i was curious you wanted people to ask but did you ever volunteer the information yes yes i did and sometimes it was met with great silence most of the times actually because <laughs> really people, yeah, yes oh yes <laughs> really and it, yeah it was it's always quite surprising and you know, you sort of make yourself vulnerable and there's just silence because people don't want to talk about bad things and pain and all that. Well, it's a universal uh, thing. It's a universal issue. There are people in many cultures um, who, who self-harm. So this is definitely something that needs to be talked about and awareness raised and uh you do this in such a beautiful way that i think the topic will be accessible to many because of your film and the fact that it's very captivating i hope so i hope it will it will reach out to uh, it will reach a lot of people and open the dialogue around it who has seen this film so far not a lot of people, of course, the crew, but it's a very small crew mm -hmm. and less, less than five or maybe less than 10 of my friends, really not a lot of people. 
I'm looking forward for the premiere now. <laughs> so why now? Why did you decide to speak openly about the topic? It's very personal. It is. Um, well, I've been thinking about doing a film about it for years. Just couldn't find the right form to do it. And I just had this idea and I thought, that's it. You know, we should do it now. And, you know, mental health is, of course, it's a, a huge topic that's really taboo. And, you know, the, the sooner the better. Well, I think a lot of people know about uh, the mood disorders, but uh, they may not know about um, scarification. Uh, sorry, not scarification, self-harm. Scarification mm -hmm. is, is, is something different. They may not know about uh, the self-harm. I'm wondering, have you connected with any other people who, who do this, uh, this form of, um, you know, expressing them, the pain that they're in? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, throughout my life, yes, of course. Um, but also since we started making the film and, you know, crew members or the very few people that have seen it or that have seen maybe just the poster or, or the teaser since it's out for a few weeks. A surprising amount of people just reached for me, you know, friends of mine or colleagues or, you know, and just told me, oh, you know, your film, that subject, yeah, I've done it too. You know, they wouldn't use the words, which is quite interesting, but there's always this, oh, me too, I've been through that. You know, I know what you're, what you're talking about. And the amount of people is really surprising. It's really everywhere. Yes, it is. Now, the film, getting back to the film itself and the, the way it looks, um, it's your first time talking about it and you're using your own, your own body. What made you decide to use your body as the canvas and not document someone else? For a long time, I thought, this film, you know, talking about self-harming would go through a fictional character. But then I thought, if it's a fictional character, maybe I'll go into cliches or stereotypes or, you know, it won't be a, a relatable character. And then I thought, you know, why not myself? And also, of course, wondered why not someone else? Um, I think I like the idea that I could do this on my own at home and took the time that I needed to get the more uh, authenticity needed for this film for people to be able to relate, relate to it. So yeah, that's, that's sort of why, you know, because uh, documenting myself allowed me to take the time to get to this authenticity. Highlighting the scars, was that difficult for you, um, you're the director, but also the subject and and the canvas. Was it difficult for you to have someone decide what parts of your body to, to use or did you make that decision? We made it together really. And, you know, everyone on the team is someone that I trust deeply. Uh, lots of them are friends in real life. So, you know, it's been important when I when I chose who was part of the crew that they were people that I can trust. So we really worked all together. But there's definitely been a work of sort of distancing myself with the subject of the film. That's also myself, but, you know, a character in a film, that's myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wouldn't be so triggering for me. And I would, you know, grasp um, 
an idea of what was interesting for a spectator, you know, just putting myself in the director's chair and distancing from the subject. I find it incredibly brave of you that um, there is nudity involved. I thought, what a leap to go from thinking, you know, your body's not beautiful to, you know, revealing that you practice the self-harm or have in the past, or that is an issue for you, but also to stand naked in front of a camera. Um, How did you get the courage to do that? Um, Thank you. I've been actually working with um, nudity artistic nudity uh, for, I don't know, since I was like 18 uh, as a photographer and as a model. So it's something that I'm okay with. It's not easy, but I am okay with that. And I know that out of nudity comes a lot of beauty. And I've worked with models um, that never had done nudity before and it really was a positive experience for them and that's what you know that's what I want to tell everyone that I think uh, doing this wonderful job of going into nudity artistic nudity through pictures or video actually gives you a better perspective on your own body and it's really a positive experience that I hope you know sort of everyone could do. You start off with these these lines, sort of sweeping movements. How they're not brush strokes. What would you call them? Yeah, we call them uh, ink drops most ink of drops. the time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we've been uh, yeah we've been discussing this. Like, what are they? But mostly ink drops is is what you call them. Uh, yes. Now you mentioned the um, addictive part of of cutting. Um, is it sort of an ecstasy? that you feel with the cutting? Yes. Um, yes, I think it, you know, it's, um, it's something that releases the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's highly symbolic, of course. And it's, it just focuses the pain that you can have inside in your mind on the body so that you're not too focused on your mind anymore. Mm-hmm. And you are more focused on the, the outside pain. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And of, of course, it, in the addiction process, you know, it's like alcohol or drugs or, you know, shoplifting that it's sort of this reflex that, you know, something's going bad. Uh, I'm feeling overwhelmed while my answer is self-harming. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of an addictive process and that's the one answer you, you get. Objectively, I look at I look at your skin and I see the lines and the you know the paleness against the paler skin, and I'm thinking that's beautiful. But what's what's driven this beauty is pain and and anguish and and suffering, and it must be a relief for you to have this out to have this story out in the world now. It is. It is a big relief, um, and indeed there is a there is a big contrast between the fact that this beauty comes from so much violence, but that's really something, it's not all totally uh, obscure and and negative. You know, it it has some kind of beauty and there is some kind of um, obsession with the beauty of it as well. And yeah, it is, it is definitely a relief. It is going on, I would say. I'm happy that the film is done. You know, it really opened the dialogue for me. Now I'm able to talk about it way better and, and freer uh, in, a, in a more free way 
with people around. Uh, it is still a bit stressful at the moment, as long as the film is not actually out. I'm <laughs> already looking forward for, you know, talking about it with people, just like I'm doing with you now, and, you know, going on with that process. And that's really a positive one. When I read the subject matter of your film, I thought, oh, this is going to be really difficult to watch. It's going to take me to a dark place. Instead, what I found was the beauty in the, in the reality and the fact that I'm learning as I'm watching and I'm appreciating as I'm watching. And I think that aspect of your film, the way it looks, will have more people understand this aspect of, of mental health because of the way that you've done it. Did you keep this in mind when you were putting the film together? Yes, absolutely. And, and thank you for all you just said. Uh, that's, you know, that's exactly what I want, what we want, that uh, people understand it. And yeah, you know, if someone uh, has gone through it or is going through self-harming at the moment, I hope they will feel less lonely watching the film. And for people who haven't been through it or don't have words to put onto it, I hope they will understand the addictive aspect of it and all that it can represent for someone who does it. It was beautiful to see your face at the end. We spend so much time with your body, with it being just the, you know, the, the canvas, that it was beautiful to see your face at the end and see your eyes. Um, why did you decide to end the film with, with your face? I think because it really, in the end, says, that's me, I'm a real person. You know, I look like anyone else, you know, I, it's just me, you know, the face is sort of, you know, it's sort of showing, I don't know, your soul or something. It's, it's like, oh, that's it. That's you. You're a human. You're, you know, you just cross me every day on the street and you have no idea what my body is like, but that's it. That's it. Here I am. And you can see me. I'm just that girl that you could see every day. Well, it's a wonderful end to the film. How do you feel about your film being part of TIFF this year, virtual TIFF. I'm so thrilled. It's uh, it's amazing. We've been really, you know, uh, happy and grateful about this election. It's such a good opportunity for the film to be seen by a larger public and a lot of cinema enthusiasts. And it's such an honor to be part of this wonderful selection. Hi, I'm Mayor John Tory, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm old enough to remember when they called it U of T Radio. And now here's my TIFF interview with Jennifer Abbott and Joel Backen, co-directors of the new corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel. Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies for culturalmining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM. Corporations were once thought of as benign entities that employed workers, produced goods, sold them, to the marketplace and paid taxes on their profits. But certain things have changed. CEOs now earn salaries a thousand times higher than some of their full-time employees. Lobbyists pour huge donations to politicians to change the laws in their favor. Environmental catastrophe is greenwashed by fossil fuel corporations. Indigenous lands are seized by big agro, mining and oil companies. Pharmaceutical corporations promote opiates, which now kill more people than illicit drugs. And they don't even pay taxes anymore. 
Meanwhile, their power and wealth grows exponentially, eclipsing national governments and international organizations. Privatizing public housing, schools, prisons, and hospitals. Is there anything we can do to stop the psychotic, the psychopathic behavior of some of these new corporations? The new corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel, is a new Canadian documentary, a follow-up to the smash hit doc The Corporation from 2003. It combines shocking stats with cool animation, news footage, and new interviews with activists and intellectuals from AOC to Robert Reich and Diane Ravitch and the corporate CEOs themselves. This film is co-directed by award-winning documentary filmmaker Jennifer Abbott and UBC law professor Joel Backen, who wrote the original book. They both worked on the first film as well. The new corporation is having its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF, this Sunday at 9 p.m. And I'm very pleased to have Jennifer and Joel here with me via Zoom to tell us more about the new corporation. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Nice to be here. Yes, thanks for coming in. And hi, Joel. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for talking with me. So... Your previous film, The Corporation, talked about the really bad corporations of the time like Enron, Monsanto, Merck, to the shock of viewers all around the world. But by current standards, they seem like small potatoes. What has changed in the way corporations function and who they are responsible to since 2003? Well, I think it's... You just have to read the paper. <laughs> you just have to be awake to know that corporate power has increased immensely, exponentially, uh, over the time since we made the film. We made the film hoping that it would uh, maybe help create a public dialogue that would uh, ultimately lead to uh, containing corporate power, to democratic controls. But instead, what happened after the first film is uh, that corporate power increased, uh, the problems that were being created by corporations, whether it's climate or the deterioration of democracy, inequality, all of these things have become worse. And hence, the need to make uh, a new film uh, to look at these things again and to look at them in new ways and to look at how the problems have become new and bigger problems. And uh, it's a sequel that is unfortunate because ideally we wouldn't be in this place that we're in. Jen, um, the film refers to a new corporate playbook. How is the, how is this different from the traditional playbook of corporations? Well, I wouldn't say that it's, so the playbook is, the playbook of the new corporation. The new corporation. So it's it's not as if the playbook is new, but rather the corporation is the new corporation, which really the idea for that comes out of Joel's academic work. Where And so perhaps, Joel, you want to address this afterwards, but to, to, to answer the question in a short way, There was, since 2005, a very discernible shift 
in corporations in that it was almost as if they got the message from our first film that there was a problem here. They were behaving in a way that was psychopathic, the way that's how we described it. And they learned their, they had, they'd learned their lessons. They were now going to fix those problems, those that extreme self-interested behavior, and they were going to become the good guys. They were going to start to act on behalf of society and to solve, you know, some of the biggest problems that we face. So that is what we call the new corporation. Really, it's just a new face of the same corporation. And the playbook is really conjectural in the sense that it's a series of moves that we have identified the new corporation takes in its quest to win at all costs. So that was the device we settled on for the, the sequel. And I, I, I did notice, I, I did some research online, and there are, in fact, business schools, uh, MBA schools across North America that assign the corporation, both the book and the film, to their students. So they are very well aware mm -hmm. of it. Um, yes, and so speaking of this image, uh, talk about how oil companies go out of their way to show how green they are now. But does their image match their practices, Joel? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the companies that we feature in the film, in this film, and I had featured it in my previous book, though it wasn't in the first corporation film, uh, is British Petroleum. So uh, I had the great privilege of sitting down uh, for this film and for this and for my new book, uh, which is also called The New Corporation, which is coming out September 22nd. Um, I had the privilege of sitting down with uh, Lord John Brown, who was the CEO of British Petroleum for years and years and distinguished himself, as we show in the film and book, as a truly environmentally concerned um, oil and gas leader. In fact, really the first oil and gas CEO and company that, that, that wore the mantle of true environmental sustainability and all of that. So it became a very big part of British Petroleum's branding. Uh, to um, to be green, to be sustainable. And so we show that in the film, and we also show the Deepwater Horizon oil rig of British Petroleum blowing up and killing people and destroying the Gulf of Mexico. And the basic question is, how is it that you have a company that prides itself on its safety and environmental record, but at the same time, is acting in ways that lead to uh, these disasters. While John Brown was CEO, uh, a huge explosion at a plant in Texas City in Texas. And then after he left the Deepwater Horizon uh, rig, how is it, how, how, do we, how do we understand this disconnect between what they say and what they do? And the argument that we make and that I make in the book perhaps in more detail than, than we do in the film, but the basic argument is it's not that they don't care about safety and the environment. It's not that they're lying necessarily. It's just that they only can care about safety and the environment to the point where it interferes with their fundamental obligation, which is to make money for their shareholders. So when you talk to John Brown 
you hear him saying, and you hear him in the film saying how concerned he is about safety. But when you look at the kind of safety that he addressed at his company, it's always what might be called cheap safety. It's making sure that there are rules in place so that workers don't slip, so they don't fall, so that they have lids on their coffee cups and things like that. That doesn't cost the company anything. But when you look at its record on process safety, on whether the pipes are going to keep the oil in them or are going to fail, on whether a pressure valve system is going to work on a deep water uh, drilling rig, they were horrible. They had a terrible track record. And so they're saying we care about safety, and it's true, but their understanding of safety is narrowed because it has to comport with their fundamental task of making money. And so I think that is the story that we're telling. We're not saying that corporations are lying outright when they say they care about human rights, the environment, society, poverty, whatever. What we are saying is that they can only care to the point where caring starts to cost their shareholders money. And that doesn't go very far. It certainly doesn't go as far as is suggested in the propaganda, media, nice videos and advertisements that they spend lots of money pumping out to us. Uh, briefly, Jen, corporations work very hard to be declared as humans. They're people. Now they seem to have taken the opposite tack and call their employees business partners or corporatizing their own employees, which means they're not responsible for paying them anything except what they want. Can you uh, talk about this uh, gig economy and how it, it is affected by this corporate tactics? Sure. I mean, I think it's simply one more strategy along the trajectory of corporations doing everything they can to make as much money for their shareholders as possible. And, you know, I think it's an ultimately extremely short-sighted uh, strategy because, you know, when people are so disenfranchised and so downtrodden that they can't even earn a, a living wage when they may be working two or three jobs in the gig economy, uh, ultimately that's going to backfire. You know, the, the, the dismantling of the middle class is ultimately impacting the unraveling of consumers' ability to actually purchase goods. But more importantly, it's unraveling society itself. And we had we interviewed um, Nick Hanauer in our film, who is a, a venture capitalist and billionaire. And he wrote a great little book about which describes how, you know, if we continue to eviscerate the middle class, the, the people who have not even the basics to live on are going to rise up. And that is ultimately just going to be a bad uh, situation for everyone. So at any rate, I think that the gig economy is just one example of of really many that we could point to in terms of how corporations uh, just do anything that they possibly can to to win at all costs. Uh, I'd like to uh, follow up on what you said about people rising up. A lot of the film, I got to say, is sort of 
not depressing, but it's like, oh, my God, look at the world. What are we going to do? But in the last quarter of the film, you talk about what's going on right now. I mean, like up to maybe a week ago and what people can do to change the world or fight back. Can uh, Joel, can you comment on this, on the uh, reaction to the corporate behavior? Yeah, I, I think one of one of the great things about this film is that it, it provides a pathway to hope at, at the end. And it's not a, a disingenuous or a false pathway. I think it's very real. We try to show a through line from uh, the, you know, the anti-globalization movements, which we dealt with in the first film, but uh, to the movement of the squares in 2001, the Occupy movement, uh, the, um, the democratic movements that came out of that, uh, like Bernie Sanders and uh, Adekolau in Barcelona. Um, but the, these attempts of um, often young politicians, but not always, uh, AOC in the United States, uh, to try to actually make democracy work in democratic ways. And we're right in the middle of that now. Um, it's true that Bernie Sanders didn't become the presidential candidate, but nonetheless, those movements are very strong throughout the world and in the United States at local levels, state levels, and uh, in Congress as well. So that's very, very important. And then there's also um, the uprising in the wake of George Floyd's brutal police killing, uh, which um, is, I think, absolutely an example of, of just a, a, a mass mobilization around social injustice um, that we, we literally, you know, had to go back into the can. We had finished the film, uh, but when that happened, we knew that it was, it was necessary to, to deal with it. And Jen may have some further thoughts. Oh, I just think that the uprising related to George Floyd's murder, it's so genuinely hopeful because it's challenging systemic racism. It's challenging the system and the momentum and the passion and the effectiveness of the uprising enabled us to really have an ending of our film that really matched what we, you know, the, the first two acts of our film where we go deep, deep, deep into the despair of this moment in time. So for us, it was essential that we include uh, the uprising, and, and we really do feel it uh, shifted and transformed the whole film uh, in t to be able to include it. I couldn't agree with you more. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank, thank you. you very much. I've been okay, talking with you. I've been talking with co-directors Jennifer Abbott and Joel Backen about their new film, The New Corporation, the, unne the unfortunately necessary sequel, having its world premiere on Saturday, on Sunday rather, at TIFF. Thanks so much for talking with me. This is Daniel Garber, the movies each Friday morning on CIUT 89.5 FM and my website, Cultural Mining. Hi, this is Carol Pope on CIUT 89.5 FM. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Come join my night owls and early birds Wednesday mornings, 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. And happy tiffing! I'm Mark Tara from the syndicated radio show and number one LGBT podcast, Rainbow Country, which can be heard right here on CIUT Tuesdays, 11 p.m. 
Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. We'll be back Tuesday at 11 a.m. and Wednesday at 2 p.m. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight, we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, I'm very proud to be here tonight, and I'm so grateful that you joined us. Don't stop till you get enough.